Welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss. Thanks for listening. A psychiatrist from Central Florida, his name is Elias Sarkis, has presented a very interesting idea about attention deficit disorder. So we're at a meeting and I managed to pull him aside and he and I are now going to investigate some different approaches to how to think about attention deficit disorder. Dr. Sarkis, thank you so much for being here. Thanks a lot, Abby. It's a pleasure to be here. Where should we begin? Why should we even talk about attention deficit disorder? That's exactly what I was thinking about on my way over here. Why should we talk about attention deficit disorder? Most people think attention deficit disorder is unruly boy in the second grade, makes a little bit too much noise, maybe pulls some girl's hair who's sitting in front of him, and they don't really realize how much of an impairment ADHD is in the life of a person. And we used to think that, well, people grew out by sometime around puberty, they stopped being ADD. The reality is, with now 30 years of experience, I realized that actually the impairment in adults is much worse than the impairment in children when ADHD does persist into adulthood. Presents differently or just more difficult to manage? It's, it's more impairing. As a child, you have parents usually, and the parents are, organize you. They help you with your backpack. They make sure that you eat. They make sure that you get to bed on time, get up on time, etc. An adult ADHD person not only has to organize themselves, but they have to organize often. They have to organize children or a household or their jobs. And the lack of organization or disorganization, all the hallmarks of the ADHD actually make an adult's life worse than ADHD makes a child's life that makes any sense. Well, it does. It raises several very interesting questions and necessary questions. There seems to have been an enormous rise, an increase in the diagnosis of attention deficit disorder. It does seem to have blurred more into the children, adolescents, and into adults. I remember years ago, it was looked more as if it was more of a, a disorder of kids and adolescents, but even though there was a large component, people still had it as an adult. But they used to call it ADHD residual. Correct. Which kind of a leftover. Let's take one quick step backwards for a moment. What is ADHD? Where does it come from? ADHD is, is mostly genetic. Unfortunately, as with all the psychiatric illnesses that have been studied genetically so far, ADHD is multi-genetic. There are a lot of genes okay. that contribute a little bit to ADHD, which is why you see a vast heterogeneity so ADHD presents very differently in different people, partly because of the genetic influences and partly because of the environmental influences. I hear that in other countries, they tend to use much less psychostimulants than in the United States to deal with ADHD. Do you have any experience with that? Yes. Actually, I went to medical school in France. And at the time that I was in medical school in France, in order to start a child on Ritalin, you actually had to hospitalize the child before you could start them on Ritalin. And that is changing today, but still there's a very strong uh, anti-medication bias in Europe specifically, which probably has the medical system that's closest to, to ours really. Speaking of Europe, they just did a study of outpatients in psychiatric treatment. Typically these are outpatients with depression and anxiety. We're not talking about bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. We're talking about outpatients. And they evaluated all these outpatients and found a 19% rate of undiagnosed attention deficit disorder. That's a huge in number. Adults, in adult outpatients of psychiatric practices. One in five psychiatric outpatient presenting with anxiety or depression in Europe has an undiagnosed ADHD. So the underlying problem since ADHD 
by definition, is really lifelong. The underlying problem is ADHD, but the presenting problem to the psychiatrist is depression, uh, marital stress, anxiety, etc. So it's a misdiagnosis. Correct. They didn't or get to the core. Or, or, or it's, a, or it's a added, a secondary, another diagnosis that is layered on. And in my practice, it's taken me years before I was able to realize that many of my patients who are not responding very well actually did have ADHD. Uh, even though I'm, I'm so-called an ADHD expert, I remember one lady came back from a TMJ specialist. This lady had a very severe depression. She was in a marital abusive relationship, she had a lot of anxiety. There were all sorts of other issues that we were sort of focused on. She also had TMJ. She went to see a specialist and she came back and she told me, my dentist tells me I have ADHD. I'm stunned. But apparently TMJ and bruxism are very common in ADHD patients. It's not, of course, one of the diagnostic criteria, but the dentists know about it. How do you go about diagnosing it? I think one of the things that going back to the original topic is why are we talking about this? It, it is very prevalent. I think it's, it's a lot more common than people realize. It really creates a burden on the quality of life of an individual that is very great. It creates a burden on the quality of life of a family. The parents of an ADHD child have a much higher divorce rate than the parents of non-ADHD children in controlled studies. We're talking about people still not getting treatment for a very treatable condition. There's no cure, but there is a lot of very good treatment and people aren't getting it and they're suffering. So that's why I want to talk about it because it's common, it's treatable, people aren't getting the treatments that they should be getting, and it really is it's a very significant illness. It's not anything minor. People go, well, it's not fatal. Well, ADHD itself is not fatal, but car accidents can be. ADHD people are, are known to have higher rates of motor vehicle accidents. It could be fatal to your lifestyle. It could be fatal, period. I've had in my own practice, unfortunately, those, at least the story of two toddlers who have died because their ADHD parents were neglectful. One forgot the child, this was a change in the routine. He went to work. Normally, the mother took the child to daycare. That day, he, he was supposed to take the kid to daycare. He had a project on his mind, and he just went to work and left the kid in the sun in Florida to die, unfortunately. Another set of parents just never got around to fixing the latch on their pool, and their ADHD toddler, their very hyperactive toddler, died. Why? Why, Elias? Why, why, why the underdiagnosis? Or is there an element to it that people are afraid to diagnose it because, generally speaking, the nature of the treatments are controlled substances, uh, psychostimulants? I think that's a big part of it. I think that's a huge part. The treatment is associated with disorder. The disorder is associated with the treatment. People do abuse stimulants. I have a hard time getting my ADHD adolescents to take their medications more, much more often than I do seeing them abuse it. But they do misuse it. They may give it to other kids. Some people may misuse it to either lose weight or stay up all night or whatever. So it is, I think, the treatment really does taint the disorder. And what about the paradoxical notion, which I've always been intrigued by, that you have someone who's hyperactive and you give them a stimulant, it seems backwards. Exactly. It does seem backwards, but remember, Abby, that most of the brain is in humans is inhibitory. So we really are activating the brain in order to slow the body down. 
And if we can't, if we don't slow the body down, then it really does a bad, bad things happen. So we're activating the inhibitory part, so it puts it back into a balance, so to speak? Yes. Now, if someone is on a psychostimulant, how quickly do you know if you're on the right path? Is it a, like with antidepressants? No. Uh, one, one of the problems with stimulants is that they work pretty quickly. That, that is one of the reasons, again, because of pharmacodynamics or pharmacokinetics, rather, you have something that works very quickly and then it washes out. And so, of course, that gives it a higher addiction potential than, say, an antidepressant, which may take three, four or five weeks to work. A stimulant will work once you get to the right dose. We know very quickly or within an hour if it's a longer acting stimulant, very quickly you know that your stimulant is working, you feel the effects, you also feel the effects later when it wears off. So it could be five hours later if it's a short acting stimulant, three, four, five hours, or it could be 12 hours later if it's one of the longest acting stimulants. Is it very common, especially for adults, that they start self-medicating, using alcohol, using other substances to try to calm themselves down? Oh, absolutely. Interestingly, marijuana is the number one substance abused by adolescents. One of the big problems with ADHD is this problem of inertia. So when they're going, they're going. When they when they stop, they're, they, they, they can't get going. So one of the big problems with ADHD is getting to sleep. And so a lot of adolescents will self-medicate with pot in order to go to sleep. And they have a hard time giving it up. People who had cocaine problems, that many times I'll say to them, what does it do to you? What, is, what does the cocaine do? Does it speed you up? And they'll say, oh, no, calm me right down. Right, exactly. The big problem with ADHD is more in terms of pot and alcohol than it is with cocaine because cocaine does not actually give them a rush. Right. There's no attraction to it. You, you commented, you said that it's a lifelong condition, but I would imagine most people could not imagine that the elderly, my grandparents, actually have ADHD. It seems like it's a young person disease if you just look at it from the general sense of um, the general understanding of it. Your point is well taken. The presentation of ADHD does change over the years. I mean, you're not going to expect a grandparent to be running around the room, but I do remember my grandma would never sit down for at dinner. She was always, she was in fact going back and forth, getting some food, getting something, you know, it, it looked purposeful. Now, thinking back on it, I'm not so sure it was. I've heard my teenagers sometimes speak to their friends, and when somebody was very active or hypersensitive, they'd say, oh, you're so bipolar. There is an overlap between bipolar disorder and... There is. Some authors believe that most bipolar people have ADHD. Obviously, there are a lot of ADHD people that have bipolar disorder. But I think sometimes what we see is an ADHD person and a major depressive disorder. You can have both. Absolutely. That European study that I talked about did not include bipolars. It included people with depression and anxiety, and 20% of those people had undiagnosed ADHD. You've got ADHD, you've got major depression, and when the person gets better from the depression, they may be a little excitable at times, and some people may think that they are actually manic depressive or they're, they're bipolar twos, etc. I think that some bipolar twos are actually people that have ADHD and major depressive it's disorder. It's a mixture. It's a mixture. It's a mixture. Is there a sense about how old someone has to be or how young someone has to be when it presents? Do we see it in three-year-olds? Do we see it in nine-year-olds? Is there a sense of when it first appears? It's easier when the child is hyperactive and you see it very quickly, very early on. If the child is inattentive, then obviously 
you sort of need to wait until the child's in school. Explain a little it. difference, the difference between inattentiveness and hyperactivity. Hyperactivity is really an increase in motoric activity, an increase in uh, running around, uh, just being able to blurt out things. And inattention is not being able to pay attention, being distractible. So you're trying to uh, read a textbook and you uh, there's a, a little bit of noise outside and all of a sudden you head and you don't can't remember where you were on the page, et cetera. So inattention is usually diagnosed a little bit later. Also, the, the diagnosis, also the severity of the impairment also depends on the child's IQ, the child's environment. It's so variable. So if you have a, a child of two professors, they're probably not going to look very inattentive because they're going to be able to, uh, with a high IQ, they're going to be able to compensate, especially with the help of their parents, Contrast that with a child in a, say, a one-parent family who uh, doesn't get enough attention at home, who perhaps is of average IQ, they're not going to have those compensatory mechanisms. They're not going to do well. They're going to get diagnosed earlier. Two questions come to my mind as you were talking, actually, here. Okay, well, let's go with the one first about the environmental structure Mm -hmm. that maybe in Europe or in other places, they try to intervene with structural cognitive things earlier on that might make a therapeutic difference. Are we too quick to medicines in this country? We may be too quick to medicines, but we we still are only treating about half of the ADHD population. But to answer your question, can we do more things? We can provide more cognitive structure. We can provide, you know, I remember elementary school and Catholic school with nuns hitting kids on the hands with rulers. You're not allowed to talk. And I went to my son's third grade classroom. I walked in. I went to go have lunch with him. It was a different day. It was Wednesday, so I got there a little bit early. The teacher invited me into the classroom. I had never seen a parent in my classrooms when I was a kid. And during the half hour until lunchtime, four people came in and out of that classroom. I only remember the principal and the pastor coming into my classroom once a year. (laughs) So can we do a lot of things differently? Yes. Uh, one of the things that helps ADD kids is to be able to get out and run around and exercise. And unfortunately, one of the ways we punish them is by not allowing them mm-hmm. to go out on recess. There are certain things that we can do to at least, if not decrease the rate of medications, but certainly decrease the dose of medications. If you let the kid run around, if you let the kid stand up to do his work, if you do more, use computers more often, I think ADHD kids do better on uh, that kind of stuff. They, uh, When they're paced, they can pace themselves better if they're given interesting things. Again, one of the issues is that the deficit is not in attention. The deficit really is in the regulation of attention. An important point. When you give a kid a, an interesting video game, there's no lack of attention. The engine's working just fine. Good problems with the brakes and the gas pedal. So if you give the kid a boring teacher... There's no attention there at all. But if you give him something that wakes his brain up. When does the ADD seem not to be there? And it's a, it's, it's a very key point. Quick question. Might what we typically call the type A personality, mm-hmm. might that be ADD? I think there's a strong overlap. I think that ADHD plus a good compensatory mechanism, you know, the drive to, to succeed just in order to overcome the attention deficit problems to succeed. And so then you wind up with this type A personality. We have very little time left. It's amazing how time flies by. When should a parent become worried? When does a parent look at their kid and say, it's time to see the pediatrician or a mental health person? 
Number one is when the child's self-esteem gets starts to be impacted. And a lot of times that'll happen depending, it'll happen when the child realizes that, they, that they're working harder than their classmates. Kids sort of cluster according to their intelligence and other social things. And they usually hang out with kids about the same intelligence and they'll wind up with getting poor grades relative to their friends. And they'll notice that they're working harder than their friends and they're still getting poorer grades. Their self-esteem starts to get hurt. So that's a good measure. It actually is. And there are other signs when the condition becomes impairing, I think is time to get help. Now, I have to plug Dr. Bussing. The University of Florida has done what's called PCIT, Parent-Child Interaction Therapy for ADHD, and it's been uh, very successful. So it's a very early intervention from the ages of three to six. So it really teaches the parent how to deal with the child differently. And according to the statistics, they've been very successful. Elias Sarkis is a child psychiatrist in the middle of Florida, and quite clearly he has a great deal of experience with attention deficit disorder and many of its characters and problems and challenges and so on. Dr. Sarkis, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Dr. Strauss.